Ukderon, Goramahagat Asangara, the Parched Locker Seminar and Lay New Idlor Machnov Kid. Professor John Horn has offered us a comprehensive yet succinct perspective on the themes of nation, empire, and partition in the context of this island and its wider place in the British Empire and beyond 100 years ago. I would now like to explore how these themes affected the personal experiences of some of those who lived through the events and to consider how we remember a century later, a distance sufficiently safe to allow for more inclusive reflection. Professor Horn suggested that the dynamics of nation and sovereignty were stronger driving forces behind the Irish Revolution than were concerns of empire. That is a convincing analysis from the perspective of the, of the insurgents. But have we looked sufficiently at the factors motivating their adversaries? Members of the Crown forces who served in Ireland during these years, men who, from the Irish perspective, constitute the other referred to by the president in his remarks launching this series in December. In that reflection, the president noted how the violent actions of the Crown forces were strategic tools employed to defend empire, and certainly that was the vision of the political and military leaders who deployed these men to Ireland. But what of the individual motivations of the men who defended the British nation and empire in Ireland throughout 1920 and 1921? We know something of what triggered infamous reprisals, such as the indiscriminate shooting of civilians at Croke Park or the burning of Cork City, often knee-jerk reactions to deaths of comrades or the inevitable consequence of overindulgence in alcohol. These events took place in Ireland, but what brought these men who perpetrated them to Ireland in the first place? The president has cautioned against stereotypical depictions of the other, Older generations in Ireland were led to believe that the black and tans and auxiliaries were unstable renegade ex-convicts, a perception largely demolished by the empirical research of the Canadian historian David Leeson, among others. Through own personal experiences and testimonies offer an opportunity to explore the rationale behind the decisions and the actions of the Crown forces. Just over 100 years ago, on the 2nd of February 1921, a group of 19 men, including engineers, mechanics, clerks, a messenger, a dairy assistant, an actor, a spinner, and a teacher and preacher, all of whom were members of M Company of the Auxiliary Division of the RIC, were ambushed by the North Longford Flying Column of the IRA in the townland of Clonfin, between the town of Brannard and the village of Balnalee. Four auxiliaries were killed, and a further seven were subsequently discharged as medically unfit never to serve again on account of the severity of the injuries which they sustained. The vast majority had been in Ireland for six weeks at most, and their original training for trench or airborne warfare during the First World War left them ill-prepared for an ambush on a quiet Irish country road. Testimonies, testimonies of the injured and the families of the deceased in claims for compensation offer some insight into what led them to such strange surroundings. One survivor, William Bellingham, said that he joined the auxiliaries merely to tide him over in the crisis in the engineering trade after the First World War. Harold Clayton, one of the fatalities, had been sending home a very valuable £5 weekly to his pregnant wife and child. The most unusual member of the group, a South African Boer War veteran who had served on the same side of his former enemy during the recent Great War, made the cryptic comment that he hoped something would come out of joining the RIC indicating a possible ideological motive. 
though the fact of his divorce later in 1921 suggests a possible element of escapism to his brief Irish adventure. In other ways, the Clonfin auxiliaries exhibit the nuances and complexities surrounding the revolutionary years. One of those permanently incapacitated was an Irish man from County Leash, while one of the surviving auxiliaries subsequently married a Longford woman who had grown up not far from the Clonfin ambush. Exploring the lives of the individual members of the Crown forces allows us to view events in Ireland in 1920 and 21 from the perspective of the other and suggests that while at the macro level considerations of nation, identity, loyalty and empire drove the conflict, at the micro level of the individual participants, more mundane considerations of job security and economic stability go some way to explaining how it was that many British men who served in the Crown forces during the War of Independence found themselves in Ireland in the first place. The centenary commemoration of the Clonfin ambush took place earlier this month, a muted event in the context of the pandemic and their current restrictions on public gatherings. The ceremony, organised by the descendants of the IRA men of the North Longford Flying Column, honoured the contribution of their ancestors to the achievement of Irish independence. But it also recognised the loss of the lives of four auxiliaries. In the context of last year's controversy surrounding the place of the RIC in centenary commemorations, this event, along with one held in Solihead in January 2019, shows how commemoration can be an inclusive rather than an exclusive or exclusionary process. The John Finn centenary commemoration epitomised the spirit of ethical remembering which the President has done so much to encourage. In a similar vein, a personal journey of reconciliation undertaken by Mercy Sister Maeve Brady, whose father Tom Brady was a member of the IRA ambush party at Clonfin, to visit the four cemeteries in England where the deceased auxiliaries were laid to rest, was at once a simple but a powerful and significant gesture. In the final section of his discourse dealing with the effects of partition, Professor Horn drew attention to the Catholic and nationalist minority trapped in the enclave of the newly created Northern Ireland, and has also alluded to the problems that ensue when a nation or a state becomes defined by the identity of the majority. 100 years on, as we live through the centenary of the creation of Northern Ireland, we face one of the most challenging contexts for all of the events that have to date been marked during this past decade of centenaries. For the unionist community, the story of Northern Ireland is a heroic tale of survival against the odds. And for nationalists, it is one of abandonment, alienation and discrimination. How can a middle ground be found between those two extremes? Perhaps the answer is that one cannot and therefore should not be sought. The role of scholars is to expose, expose the complexity of the facts from which those various competing narratives draw their interpretations. We should be wary of those who seek to appropriate conveniently cherry-picked events to make a statement relevant to current issues. In a similar vein, cheerful prognostications about the potential of the coming centenary, made in the context of centenary commemorations, runs the risk of ignoring how the present has been conditioned by past painful experience. The issues of identity, loyalty and nationhood explored by Professor Horn are also pertinent to the experience of Ireland's other minority population, which found itself left behind in a majoritarian jurisdiction, the Southern Protestants. When the first census of the Irish Free State was held in 1926, it revealed a significant demographic change. 
The reduction by one third of the non-Catholic population of the 26 counties from the last all-island census conducted in 1911. There is a relative level of scholarly consensus that this phenomenon was the result of a myriad of economic and demographic factors which played out over a long period of time, predating the revolutionary period but intensifying during it. Voluntary emigration for economic reasons, natural decline where birth rates failed to keep pace with mortality, and the departure of the British garrison and other servants of the state, British state in 1922 all contributed to the significant downturn. While scholars reject the emotive claims alleging a systematic campaign of ethnic cleansing, that is not to say that the revolutionary upheaval of the period was not a factor in Protestant departures, especially in the most violent years between 1920 and 1922. If Protestants were not targeted specifically because of their religion alone, their denominational affiliation was often part of a wider associational culture, such as membership of the Orange Order or fraternizing in church or social groups with co-religionists who are members of the Crown Forces that was part of the explanation for them coming under suspicion. In January 1922, Southern Protestants faced an unknown future. The decline of their numbers by 1926 indicates that at least some departed to Britain or to Northern Ireland in many cases. However, that focus on departures can detract attention from the fact that the majority elected to remain. In an editorial in the Church of Ireland Gazette in January 1922, soon after the ratification of the treaty by the Dáil, it recognised that the loyalists of the South and West do not regard the change which is impending with any great enthusiasm, but asserted that they are determined to make the best of things, promising to give their wholehearted and active support to the Irish Free State. The enormity of that decision and the wrench which, in, which it entailed for many in abandoning an integral part of their identity and association with nation is one which should not be overlooked in our current commemorative landscape. For the descendants of those Protestant Remainers, commemorating certain actions from the War of Independence and Civil War in the South will evoke painful memories of past family experiences. The faith placed in the new state by Protestants was not always reciprocated. Discrimination against Protestants in the South was never comparable to that of Catholics in the North. Yet, in his memoir of early life in Southeast Leinster, the late Church of Ireland canon Norman Ruddock recalled the ghettoization of life lived around sectarian institutions, the divisions within families caused by Catholic insistence on Nate Hemeray, and the difficulties of navigating heightened social tensions locally as a recently ordained cleric during the Fetheron Sea boycott in the 1950s. We may now think of these experiences as belonging, thankfully, to the history books. Yet, similarities can be observed between the choice facing Southern loyalists in 1922 of whether to leave or to remain, and the choices that might yet face Unionists in Northern Ireland in the current context of discussions about border poles and the constitutional future of the entity created by the partition that we are discussing here today. During an interview with the comedian Patrick Keelty for a television documentary made not long after the Brexit referendum, the Northern Ireland First Minister Arlene Foster speculated that in the hypothetical event of Irish unity, she did not feel she would be able to continue living in Ireland. These views were far from unanimous within unionism. By contrast, Lady Sylvia Herman, then a sitting independent unionist MP for North Down, declared forthrightly, I will be staying. I've always loved this country. I will not leave it, even if it is ruled by Dublin. While wary of drawing anachronistic parallels between the past and the present, 
we can still look to the past to inform the future. In the event of a United Ireland, are there lessons to be learned from the experience of the integration of the Southern Protestants after 1921 that could inform any future status of Northern Unionists in such an identity entity as the United Ireland? Because it's highly unlikely to be as seamless a process as it was then and will require significant change to institutions in the Republic also. While the events we commemorate belong to the past, the ritual of commemoration is a live process, reflecting current sensibilities, opinions and priorities. The future also has a role in this process. Reflecting in the present upon how we did things in the past offers the opportunity to inform the future. Gormahogavakarja. <laughs>